Well, good morning, faith family. I want to say hello to those gathered in Lakeville in our venue also. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark 2 this will be our text this morning. We are starting a new series uh, this morning called The Grace Parade. This will take us up uh, till about uh, Easter. And um, we're going to be talking about the radical and redemptive grace of God. And really kind of what sparked this series for me was a passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, But God, uh, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then verse seven was kind of the key verse for me. So that, in other words, for the purpose of in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us. In Christ Jesus. This parade that we're on is heading somewhere. And where it is headed is to an eternity where God will forever be glorified for the riches of His grace. The Bible really is an unfolding of God's grace parade. And my hope is to almost kind of sketch out the biblical narrative, which I realized would take us about forever. And so I've decided to just stick with the ministry of Jesus and show how in the Gospels, this parade that Jesus is leading is a grace parade. So join me this morning in Mark chapter 2 as we begin this series as kind of an introduction to what we're going to be talking about the next several weeks. Now, I am just a little over 48 hours back on American soil, uh, so if I say anything heretical, it's the jet lag talking, okay? So let's just get that straight. Mark chapter 2, if you're able to stand in all of our locations, please do so. As we honor the reading of God's Word, I will tell you this, faith family, the more I study the Word of God, the more I'm convinced it is the Word of God. Mark writes here, in Mark chapter 2, verse 13, it says, And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, He said to them, those who are well have no need of the physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Would you pray with me? Father, my guess is that many of us here today would Be very quick to amen your grace. But do we really understand it? Do we understand the scandal that is your grace? And so I would ask, Father, I would ask, I would plead that you today would take me deeper into understanding the depths of your grace. Together, 
that we would understand what this grace parade really looks like. And all to the glory of the one who's leading it, the name Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Six words outraged the entire Christian community. Just six words. I don't know if you've ever um, made a statement that you would later regret, kind of the proverbial open mouth, insert foot. You ever done that? I'm sure you've done that a few times. That's exactly what billionaire and media icon Ted Turner did several years ago. If you know much about Mr. Turner, you know that he has been frequently outspoken against most forms of religion, and he was giving a speech to the American Humanist Association, and he said six words that lit Christianity on fire. He said, quote, Christianity is a religion for losers. And people went nuts. You would have thought that he insulted every mom and kicked every dog of every Christian that had ever lived. Christian leaders came out at him aggressively. They called him, quote, a bigot. They said that his comment was, quote, an insult to the Christian community. It was if Christians everywhere wanted Turner to know and all of the people like him, we're not losers, we're winners. After all, we Christians have on our side famous musicians like Carrie Underwood. We have on our side famous athletes like Carson Wentz. Go Eagles. I don't know. Just checking, just checking, right? We've got on our side famous actors like Denzel, so I'm told. But we've at least got the kid from Growing Pains. That counts for something. We have leaders on our side that have influenced U.S. presidents. And for goodness sake, don't call us losers because we've got Chuck Norris on our side. He makes onions cry. (laughs) Call us whatever you want to call us, but don't call us losers. There is something rooted in the American psyche that loves to win. It's quite an appropriate sermon on a day like today. (laughs) We want our kids to win. We want our teams to win. We want our companies to win. We love that feeling of being a winner. Ted Turner would apologize for his comment, but he shouldn't have. Because he's right. Christianity is for losers. And it's exactly what we see in Mark chapter 2. Look at verse 13. When he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him, he was teaching them. So a little context here. Jesus has just finished a series of miracles. There's the healing of the lepers in chapter 1. There's the healing of the paralytic man who is lowered down from the ceiling in chapter 2. Jesus does what he normally does. He withdraws from the crowd, but the crowd, because they can't get enough of Jesus, finds him. 
He takes this opportunity to start teaching them about the kingdom of God. Now, that's important. The reason why that's important, and you see it in verse 13, that he is teaching them. We know from the other gospels that he's teaching them about the kingdom. Now, why that's important is because he's about to, in verse 14, give you an illustration as to what he's teaching. In other words, he's teaching about the kingdom, and he's about to give you a sign of the kingdom, verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. As Jesus is leaving the Sea of Galilee, he walks by this booth. It's a booth where they would collect taxes from the fishermen as they would leave the sea. They would have to pay an income tax from all that they had caught. And there in this booth is a man named Levi. We will know him as Matthew. And Jesus says two scandalous words, outrageous words, shocking words. He says, follow me. And that doesn't seem that outrageous to us. We don't see any scandal in those two words. And that's because we're not living in the days in which Jesus lived. Tax collectors were the most hated people on the planet. Now, my guess is none of us like paying taxes. You're probably not excited this time of year. Like, woohoo, we get to pay taxes. Never met any strange bird like that. But, but this is not what's happening in this text. This is not, I don't like paying taxes. This is, I hate tax collectors. Why? Why were they the scum of the scum? Why were they the lowest of low? Well, tax collectors were Jews that worked for Rome. And they collected two different types of taxes. For simplicity's sake, let me explain it this way. There were on one hand the known taxes. These were things that you could prepare for. You knew it was coming. Things like uh, if you were alive, uh, if you uh, owned a field, uh, if you uh, had olive oil, if you caught fish, uh, an income tax. There were certain taxes that you just knew this is going to be a part of my life and you could plan on them. The problem became in this other uh, category of taxes, which were spontaneous. They were random. Uh, they were unknown. That is, they could happen to you at any time for any reason for any amount. Excuse me, sir, if you'd like to pull your boat into this harbor, you're going to have to pay me a tax. I'm sorry, if you would like to drive your camel down this street, you're going to have to pay me a tax. If you think you're going to leave today before you get out of the parking lot, you have to pay us a tax. And people hated that because the tax collector had the authority to charge anything they wanted to charge, and there was nothing you could do about it. So they would take advantage of people all the time. They were greedy. They took more than what was required. They were thieves. They would keep the extra for themselves. They were traitors because they did this to their own people and therefore classified sinners because they broke the Old Testament law of oppressing the poor. It is why they were scum of scum. They were hated more than anybody else on the planet, and it's also why they were not allowed in the synagogues. How many of you remember the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector that go down to the temple? Do you remember that story? Well, if you're going to understand a parable, you have to understand the shocking contrast that's happening in the story, or you won't understand the story. For instance, a good Samaritan. Ha! There's no such thing. A Samaritan that's actually going to stop and help a Jewish man dying on the side of the road, that just doesn't happen. And understanding the contrast and the shock helps you understand the story. What's so shocking about a Pharisee and a tax collector in the temple? 
tax collectors aren't allowed in the temple. We don't let those kind of people come into our church. They are outcast. Nobody likes them. Nobody wants to be around them, which is why in Mark chapter 2, it's a scandal. The fact that Jesus would say to a man like Levi, follow me, that is, be my disciple, is a scandal to everybody watching it take place. If you're going to choose 12 people to change the world upside down, you don't, I'm telling you, nobody picks Levi. How are you going to have a reputable ministry when you're picking such reprobates? Jesus, if you don't mind me suggesting, you pick disciples like the Cleveland Browns draft players. (laughs) Really? You're going to use your first-round draft pick on that? No wonder you're a loser. Sorry, Browns fans. I could have easily said Bears fans. But anyways... (laughs) Jesus, if you don't mind me suggesting, this is not how you build an entourage. But you do understand, faith family, that Jesus is not conforming to the culture. Jesus is constructing a kingdom, and the call of Levi is a sign as to who will be in that kingdom. It's a scandal. It's outrageous. It's shocking. And it gets even worse. Notice the response of Levi when Jesus says, follow me, the last phrase of verse 14, and he rose and followed him. Levi says, yes, Levi follows. He leaves his booth and follows Christ. Now, that doesn't seem like a scandal to us, and that's because we live in our Christian bubble. I want you to think about just a minute what this means from the perspective of Levi, follow you? Hmm. Just think about this. Leave a life of personal gain for a life of personal sacrifice? Leave a good paying job, despised though it may be, to follow a man who sleeps in a van down by the river? (laughs) He says so himself. He has no place to lay his head. Let's think about this. Leave the authority that I have over other people to be under the authority of Jesus Christ. I'm I'm asking, why would I want to leave the comfort of my booth to carry a cross? Wake up, faith family, and realize that following Jesus then, like following Jesus now, to the natural mind is for losers. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Why would you give up the life you have to crucify your life in following Jesus. What, you, you want me to be a loser? This is shocking. And I want you to see the scandal of all this. How would Jesus say to a man like Levi, follow me? And how could Levi, given what he's got in life, leave his booth to follow Christ? But it gets even worse. Levi, now that he's experienced this conversion, he's experienced the grace of Jesus and calling him to follow, uh, wants others to know about what he's experienced. It is why I've taught you, faith family, that the proper motivation for evangelism is not guilt, it's grace. It's a great place for an amen. You don't tell people about Jesus because you have to. You tell Jesus because what else would you do? You've experienced this amazing grace of God, and it's overflowing in your life. That's evangelism. Read the book of Acts. 
So a Levi, because he's experienced this grace, wants every other person in his life to experience this grace. So he gets everything ready, makes everything right, calls all his rowdy friends to come over tonight, Hugh Hank Jr. And boy, do the A-listers come out. Denzel's there. Carrie Underwood performs. The boy from Growing Pains even shows up. Look at it in verse 15. It's quite the entourage. And as he was reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many that followed him. Oops. You mean there were no A-listers there? No Hollywood elites? No, it was filled with more tax collectors and prostitutes and yuppies and bikers and thirsty hitchhikers. A bunch of losers. The reason why I know that they're losers is because of the word sinner. The word sinner in verse 15 and 16 is not referring to somebody who sins, though that's true. It's actually the word that refers to that of an outcast, a reject. In other words, what you have gathered at this table is an island of misfit toys. A group that nobody wants to be a part of. A group that nobody wants to accept. A group that nobody wants to hang around. They are rejects. And Jesus dines with them. He not only goes to the party, he eats with sinners. Does anybody here work for a PR firm? If so, could we hire you for a moment? Because this Messiah thing needs some rebranding. This is not how you call a group of people. It's not who you associate with. And I don't need to remind you this morning what it meant in the ancient Near East to share a meal with someone. It's more than we had a cup of coffee at Starbucks. As one commentator says, eating meals together in the ancient Near East was a sign of peace, trust, fraternity, and forgiveness. The shared table meant a shared life. An Orthodox Jew saying, I would like to have dinner with you, is a metaphor for I would like to enter into a friendship with you. This is a scandal. This is outrageous. This is shocking. Jesus calls Levi. Levi says yes. Levi calls all his rowdy friends over tonight. And Jesus has the audacity to eat with them. It's why what you find next is the Baptist deacons blowing their top. They're furious. They are not happy whatsoever. In fact, notice what they say in verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You can hear the judgment in their voice, can't you? How could he do something like this? Why would he do something like this? This is the question that I want to ask is, why do you give a rip? You don't give a hoot about Jesus anyway, so why do you care who he eats with? I'll tell you why they care, and I'll tell you why they're mad. It's because Jesus is breaking the law. In their minds, tax collectors and people of the such are unclean and you don't associate with unclean people. In fact, in their minds, this is worse than leprosy. I mean, at least the person with leprosy couldn't help it. 
They're over there, excluded, rejected, crying out, unclean, unclean, and you don't associate with them, but they can't help their condition. They got a disease that they couldn't help. A tax collector, on the other hand, much like a prostitute, chose the profession. They're the unclean of the unclean. They're the scum of the scum. You want to know why the Pharisees are so mad? Here's why they're mad. Put it on the screen. Because the Pharisees reject Jesus because Jesus accepts rejects. Preach, preacher. The Pharisees reject Jesus because Jesus accepts rejects. Now, it is my goal over the next couple minutes for you to feel this scandal. I want you mad at me. Bring your emails on. I don't care. I want you emotionally involved in this. And so I want to ask you personally, Lakeville, Venue, everybody, I'm asking you, what person or group is in your life that if you saw Jesus befriending them would anger you? What if Jesus walked in here today wearing the other team's jersey? Picture it in your mind. Jesus walks in wearing an Aaron Rodgers jersey. Scandalous. Or a Stefan Diggs. Or what if you saw Jesus drinking a beer? What if you saw Jesus at the Democratic National Convention? <laughs> now I gotcha. Now I gotcha. Yeah, I got it. What if you saw Jesus laughing at Starbucks with an openly gay man? What if you saw Jesus forgiving the drunk driver that took your teenage daughter's life? What if you saw Jesus receiving the worship of your ex-husband? You see, grace is amen until you see your enemy at the table. Because everybody has an Ninevite. You understand the reference. Jonah, the prophet of God, called to proclaim the grace of God to Nineveh, the very nation that brutally raped his own people. And so Jonah runs. In Jonah chapter 4, we find out why he runs. Jonah 4 verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, that is the repentance of Nineveh in chapter 3, and he is fuming mad. And he prays to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, here's what I know about you. You're a gracious God and merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. Faith family, Jonah is not here running because he's a racist bigot, though he is. He is running because he can't stomach a God that includes in his grace parade Ninevites. You don't eat with those people. How can he do such a thing? How could he be so gracious? I'm asking you, who is it that if you knew they'd be in heaven, you'd almost reconsider going?
Because until you're scandalized by the grace parade, you'll never join it. You'll write hymns about it, and you'll sing songs about it, and you'll say, whoa, we're having a series about it, but you won't be a part of it because you won't understand it. The Pharisees don't understand the grace of God because they don't see how Jesus could have at the table people like that. And it's because in all their theological training, they skipped grace 101. As Brendan Manning writes, something is radically wrong when the local church rejects a person accepted by Jesus. Jesus came for corporate executives, street people, superstars, farmers, hookers, addicts, IRS agents, AIDS victims, and yes, even used car salesmen. Jesus not only talks with these people, he dines with them, fully aware that his table fellowship with sinners will raise the eyebrows of the religious bureaucrats who hold up the robes and the insignia of their authority to justify their condemnation and reject the gospel of grace. Let me summarize it this way. God help us. Your level of excitement at God's grace to your enemy reveals how much self-righteousness is in your heart. Your level, leave that up for just a moment, your level of excitement at God's grace to your enemy reveals how much self-righteousness is in your heart. Do you say amen to the grace of God when it's your Ninevite who's at the table? Until you can say yes to that, don't amen that God is gracious because you don't understand grace. I want to ask at this point to the Pharisees, why aren't you rejoicing? Is that not the right one? Why aren't you happy, Pharisee, that a sinner has come home? Why aren't you like, Levi, this is awesome. Could I pull up a chair? Here's why. Because the Pharisees have forgotten that they too belong in the category of sinner. What they have forgotten, faith family, can I, can I tell you something this morning? Is that if Jesus doesn't eat with sinners, Jesus eats alone. Who else is he going to eat with? Because there's only two categories, Jesus and sinners. Right? Please amen that, right? And, and we want to push back like the Pharisees and say, no, 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 no. I, you know, I, I see what you're saying. I understand it makes sense, but I'm just, I can't go there because I'm not like them. I have never cheated anybody like a tax collector. Right? I, I am neither a prostitute nor have I ever been with one. I'm just not there. Okay, I'll give you that. You haven't done what they've done, but guess what? You've done what you've done. And what you've done puts you in the category of sinner. 
You haven't done what they've done. Whoopity-doo, you've done what you've done. And what you've done is enough to put you in the category of sinner. The irrationality, preach preacher, is that self-righteousness puts in categories sins and sinners. You know there's those bad sins and then there's those good sins. Just listen to yourself. You know, there's those bad sinners, but then there's those good sinners. This may be the deepest part of the sermon. There's no such thing as a good sin. Wow. (laughs) He went to seminary for that? (laughs) Jerry Bridges in a book I would highly recommend to you called Respectable Sins. This is a word for the evangelical church of which we are. He writes, quote, many conservative evangelicals have become so preoccupied with major sins of society that we've lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined sins. Worry, ingratitude, pride, selfishness, impatience, anger, envy, use of the tongue. We can be orthodox in our theology, circumspect in our morality, yet tolerate in our lives the subtle, acceptable sins. But every sin we commit, regardless of how insignificant it seems to us, is an assault on the infinite glory of God. I will summarize what he's saying there by saying it this way. The issue dear friend, is not the greatness of your sin. It's the greatness of the God you've sinned against. The issue is not the greatness of your sin. Well, I'm not like one of those. Big deal. You've sinned against the same God, so you're in the same category. Jesus then is going to make a statement that that's the heart of what I'm calling the grace parade over the next several weeks. He says in verse 17 something that summarizes the whole thing with the shock of how could you call Levi, the shock of how could he say yes, the shock of eating with sinners, the shock I would submit of the Pharisees' self-righteousness. Though if I know my own heart, it's not so shocking. And out of all that, Jesus says this, verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's a mouthful that we will spend the next eight to nine weeks trying to understand. I would summarize what Jesus says here in verse 17 this way. Notice it on the screen that the meal Pharisees, the meal disciples represents the mission. What I'm doing at this table reflects what I've come to do in the world. I came. My purpose in coming to this world is reflected in this meal. Namely, I did not come just to forgive sins. You ready? I came to fellowship with sinners. 
I came not just to say, okay, the debt's been paid. I've called, I've come to say to you, follow me. Commune with me. Be in relationship with me. Let's eat together. Scandalous, I know. Let me say two quick things about this phrase and then we'll wrap it up because I have seen this statement that Jesus makes misinterpreted. For instance, some will say there's two categories of people here. There's the healthy people and the sick people. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus is simply trying to expose the Pharisees' self-righteousness. His point is to say, you're never going to see your need for the great physician until you understand your sickness. Amen? He's not saying there are some people that don't need the great physician. Cue the entire Galatian series. Jesus didn't come for the righteous, that is, those that think they can gain their own righteousness on their own. He didn't come for those. He came for those who are willing to say, I can't do it. I can't be righteous. I need grace. Because those will see they need someone. Nobody who's healthy ever says, man, I really need to go see the doctor. I feel so great. (laughs) Nobody says that. But when you are aware of your sickness, you will run to the great physician. Secondly is that the metaphor here is that of physician sickness. Jesus is not just saying, well, you're just kind of sick. It's a metaphor. The Bible teaches elsewhere, like in Ephesians 2 that I read earlier, that we are dead in our transgressions, our trespasses of sin. We are dead. Our sickness is a sickness of death. We are not well. Amen? We're not well. The world that we live in is not well. But the good news of the gospel is that the great physician makes house calls. That's good. Write it down. That's good stuff. The good news of the gospel is not you're not well, so get yourself up by your good works and get to the hospital. The good news of the gospel is we are not well, we are sick and to death, and the great physician has come to us. And if we would be so willing as to acknowledge that we are rejects and misfits because of our sin, we can join him at the table of healing. God has come to us because in our sickness we cannot get to him and that is the good news of the gospel. Two implications, quickly, two implications that I hope today and for the rest of this series we will experience. This is what I'm after. You want to know the aim of this series? Here's what I'm after, just two. Number one is this. I want us, God, you know, I am praying fervently that we will personally experience the grace of God. And yes, I mean for you 50-year-old Christian. That amazing grace would be amazing again. And for some of you that have never experienced the grace of God for the first time, that today you would say, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge my need for the great physician. Come and heal me by your grace. Brendan Manning also writes, quote, the good news of the gospel means that we can stop lying to ourselves. It keeps us from denying that though Christ was victorious, the battle with lust, greed, pride still rages. I told you in Galatians that freedom is not absent from struggle. 
Just because we're free doesn't mean we don't struggle. Grace allows me to acknowledge that I am often unloving, irritable, angry, and resentful with the people closest to me. So when I go to church, I can leave my white hat at home. God not only loves me as I am, he knows me as I am. And because of this, I don't need to apply spiritual cosmetics to make myself presentable to him. When I get honest, I admit that I'm a bundle of paradoxes. Boy, am I. A bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I'm honest and I play games. Aristotle said, I'm a rational animal. I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. (laughs) To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story. The light and the dark. For in admitting my shadow, I learn what God's grace means. As Thomas Merton said, a saint is not someone who is good. A saint is someone who has experienced the goodness of God. So my friend, my dear faith family, today you can either admit that you belong at the table with the misfit toys, the losers, or you can stay in your self-righteous booth mocking everyone else as the grace parade passes you by. Experience the grace of God. And secondly, what I hope for this series today and over the next several weeks is that we will begin to cultivate that we personally express the grace of God to others. That we would not, God may it never be, be a church of Pharisees. We don't let them in here. We don't eat with those kind of people. Sweetheart, turn your head. Because my fear is if we only love what the world loves, we probably don't love what God loves. Or to say it a different way, if we only accept at this church what the world would accept, we probably aren't accepting what God has brought into his kingdom. Those who've experienced this radical grace are quick to express this radical grace to the rejects and the misfits because we are one. And yet God's grace has made us whole. You see, when Ted Turner said those six words, Christianity is for losers, the response of the Christian community should not have been anger. It should have been amen. Amen, Ted, you're right. You got us. Because the last time I checked, our Savior didn't come in a palace. He came in a manger. Our Savior did not have an A-list entourage. He was followed by a corrupt IRS agent and some common fishermen. Our Savior did not wear a royal crown. His was a crown of thorns. Our Savior was crucified in weakness because crosses are for losers. But the good news of that is that today, 
to the woman who had the abortion and is still haunted by the guilt, to the businessman that sold his integrity just to close the deal, to the insecure pastor who's afraid to speak the truth because he's afraid he won't be liked, to the prostitute that falls asleep every night muttering the words, never again, never again. And to the self-righteous Pharisee who thinks he's winning, only one day will be shown he's the biggest loser of them all. To them and to us, Jesus says, follow me on a grace parade. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, I acknowledge with all my sermons on grace and all the songs we sing about grace and all the books written about grace and all the ways we applaud when we hear the word grace, so few of us really understand it. It's a scandal. It's outrageous. It's radical beyond what we even know to be radical. Because at the heart of grace is Jesus sitting at a table with people who don't belong at the table. And that includes me. It includes every one of us. And that's why this parade is heading to a day where for all of eternity, everybody gathered around the throne is going to only have one story. It's a grace story. It won't be a me story. It won't be a works story. It'll be a grace story. So may we today join in the grace parade by faith in the one who's leading it. And those that are here today and have never experienced the grace of God for the first time in their life, I pray that they would recognize their sin, acknowledge it, confess it, and put faith in the one who can heal it. And the one that not only came to forgive sin, but the one who came to fellowship with sinners. And for those of us in this room, been Christians for a long time, but we think we understand grace, oh, that we would see our enemy at the table And that that would be the beginning of learning a whole new lesson at just how redemptive this thing called grace is. Call us. Beckon us. Come follow me. In Jesus' name.